Picture the scene. You're trekking through the dense jungle of video game discovery without a map. You're looking for a familiar face, a helping hand, a useful conversation about how people find and play your games. And perhaps you found it in the form of long-term journalist and writer Kate Gray. She's worked with Nintendo Life, Kotaku, Rock Paper Shotgun and many more outlets besides across her career to date. Our conversation is centered around what the media expects from game creators, how to attract their attention, and most importantly, the things not to do. I'm Simon Carlos, founder of Game Discover Co, and this is the first ever episode of the Tales from Game Discovery Land podcast. Hey there, so I'm here with Kate. How's it going, Kate? Hi, it's going well. It's a sunny day today. Excellent. So yeah, I was super excited to talk to you because of your experience, you know, both on the dev side, the community management side, and also the writing side. And so I'm definitely interested in some of your views since you've split split across both sides of the business here. So firstly, I wanted to chat a little bit about the concept of game hook, because I saw a recent presentation of yours, and you did talk about hooking there a bit. So I wondered, you know, what's your definition of game hook? Like, how do you see it when you get shown games? Well, it's interesting because I see tons of Steam pages like every week and a lot of them are very formulaic, which is not in itself a bad thing. You know, if there's a formula, I know what to expect from you. But I think it's really honing in on what your game can offer that other games don't. That's where you're going to find your hook. You can cover things like the genre. If it's a really interesting genre or it's a particularly popular genre, you can talk about that. You can have a really good tagline that's less common but I'd love to see more like sexy taglines you can sort of imagine what your demographic is and try to laser target them but the hook is very much it's similar to the elevator pitch kind of thing where you want to summarize your game in just one maybe two sentences with enough attention grabbing keywords in there it, it makes the press pay attention it makes people's ears perk up that's going to be doing a lot of the selling of your game and press will pick that up and run with it as well so have a good hook (laughs) and from my perspective I'm always interested in the visual hook as well and I know that a lot of us are kind of browsing lots of steam pages all the time do you think there's something visually in games where you look at them and you get a little bit more interested have you noticed particular facets to games that help you with that I mean people with games there is this sort of interesting visual art aspect that maybe movies don't really have in the same way because you can have people who really love pixel art games they're going to pretty much snap up any pixel art game or like a voxel game or a low poly game you know there's an art style uh, can be a hook so you know lean into that if that's an aspect that you have the screenshots can do a lot of the work there obviously and the trailer as well but if somebody is browsing steam generally what you want is to have something eye-catching as your thumbnail you have such a little amount of time to grab somebody's attention and you have so little space to do it in because on steam you are basically just a picture and maybe a title and that's going to have to communicate a lot of information so you know to have it brightly colored if that fits with your game it might not stand out a great deal because everyone's doing that but it will help you a little bit but really capture like the feeling of the game in that one header image put some thought into it of course this also applies to like you know the switch eShop. 
<laughs> and other storefronts as well. Um, actually, I think on Switch eShop, people tend to use different images. Mm -hmm. um, I can't say why, but that's something to bear in mind. You know, tailor your images to each platform, each storefront. And pick your screenshots well. This is something that I, I covered in the presentation that a lot of people are just taking really boring, really random screenshots. And I'll usually only use one to two of them because the rest of them are just unusable for one reason or another. So really put some thought into the screenshots that you're, you're putting up. Yeah, I'd like to drill down on screenshots because yeah. I've noticed that as well. And one thing I've noticed with people is people are not very keen, I think, to put their UI in screenshots sometimes. And I think that's, mm -hmm. I, sometimes it's because the game is early and they don't feel like they have a good UI. But certainly when you're picking screenshots because you want to talk about a game, are you looking for kind of a mix of ones that look good and ones that look like what the real game is like? Or what do you think? I would say if you're putting together a press kit of 10 screenshots, which is what I would advise, you know, you're the one who can sell your game by how it looks. You might as well include 10. It's a nice number. I would pick a mixture of this is what the game actually looks like. So UI and, you know, all that kind of thing. And then a lot of more posed screenshots, like with really nice composition, nice lighting, nice color balance, things like that. Think about the like the prettiest moments in your game and stand there, uh, record a video, and then you can take screenshots from that. And just go with one uh, of each moment. You wanna have a range across the 10 screenshots. But what you need to think of uh, in regards to press covering your game and using those screenshots is that they will need a lead image. And this cannot be the same as the one that you have on Steam because that has a logo on it. We can't use uh, lead images that have logos because it won't translate well when that piece is, is much smaller because the logo will be small and it'll be kind of muddy. So you want something that's really big, vibrant, easy to read, even at a small resolution. So have at least one that is like that. It can be the key art, the key art is usually the most appropriate. Just make sure that it doesn't have a logo, please. <laughs> and that's a really good point because it talks about the different use cases. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes people will use the same screenshots everywhere, but you know, clearly on Steam, you don't. And maybe in some cases you can't put key art as one of your screenshots. So it's a good yeah. example of where you should be uh, changing up the kind of stuff that you're sending or making available in your press kit compared mm -hmm. to what you put on Steam. I'm more of a fan of, I think it's good to have kind of good post stuff on your Steam page, but also sometimes I find people will abstract their game away entirely. There was this tycoon game I was checking out on mm -hmm. Steam a few months ago and it didn't have any interface and I just couldn't really tell on the screenshots and I just couldn't really tell what it played like. And I think yeah. if it's early on and you want to get people a little bit excited, that's great. But for people making buying decisions on the Steam page, I think you do need to have a little bit more information there. I think that's a really good point. People do that with trailers as well. I've seen so many trailers that are more a sort of tonal idea of the game, which is useful but it can't be the only trailer you have because I don't know if you're offering me a visual novel a point and click I don't know it could be anything I know that it's like steampunk let's say but I don't know how I'm actually going to be interacting with the game so yeah I think you make a good point that you really need to pay attention to the audiences you're catering to on steam uh, having screenshots that show you what the game is like is really good with the press kit you maybe want to err more on the side of you know this looks gorgeous even if it's not necessarily representative of the game because those are the images that are going to come to represent your game within the press so make them good <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and it's an interesting point. Even from a streamer point of view, I know that I've spoken to some streamers before, like Splattercat, and they've said that key <laughs> art is very important for streamers as well because mm. of the YouTube thumbnails. So again, maybe your Steam page doesn't have a key art minus the logo, but for streamers as well, I think you do really need nice key art or nice yeah. pose stuff, right? Because if you give me the key art and you include the logo, what is going to happen is that I will crop it. I don't have enough time to Photoshop out a logo and it probably wouldn't be that easy. So I'm then cropping, you know, a good maybe half of what's in that key art just to get the logo out of the way. And why would you want someone to do that to your beautiful key art? <laughs> Exactly. No, I think that's a great point. So yeah, it's it's interesting. Even we've just gone granular on screenshots. There's, there's mm -hmm. so many little things that you can find that will improve your outreach. And I think yeah. uh, from a press perspective, actually, something I wanted to talk about that's less streamer and player centric is sort of the human story or the, the there are some hooks in games that I think are less about the game and more about, say, the team that put it together. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you see people who've pitched you in the past for some of your outlets, like, do you think pitching with a human story is a good idea? Do you think people do it much or enough? What, what do you think? I think it is a, a tricky one to get right. The example that I think of a lot of the time is that Dragon Cancer, which was very much a human story. It's about a real experience that somebody had with their child going through cancer. And, you know, you, you can't just manufacture that kind of story if your game doesn't have that. And I think that if you try to force a human story into your very normal game dev experience, then it's going to come across as insincere. So a human story can be anything from, you know, this is a solo developer who's been working on this game for 10 years. That's interesting because it's unusual. That's not something that you see a lot. Or it can be this game is about the personal experience of our lead artist or something like that. But you'll know, I think, quite early on if your game involves a human story. A lot of human stories that I see in, in sort of press release emails are kind of like, well, okay, you know, it's like, this is a studio of only four people working from the French countryside. And I'm like, that's not really that strange. <laughs> like, it's cool, good for you. If it was, you know, we're working on a farm and we don't have any internet, then hey, that's a little more interesting. It still doesn't really have anything to do with the game though, if you know what I mean, unless it was a game about the French countryside. Yes. This is an example. This isn't a real person. <laughs> uh, you aren't calling out the French countryside in general. This is just a point. No. point. Yes. Uh, no, I think that's fair. And certainly, you know, I, I also have worked, you know, I get I, less so nowadays when I work with Game Discover Co. But certainly when I was working at Gamasutra.com and mm -hmm. GameDeveloper.com, we'd, we'd get developers talking to us about their stories. And I definitely agree that it's important to, yeah, get it right. You need to understand what's exciting to everybody, not just you. And I think I think that's that's a fair comment. I think, yeah. uh, you know, so something else I wanted to talk about along these lines is when people talk to you about games that their game is like. And this is obviously something that people are tempted to do. Like either my game is a genre mashup and that's really cool. Or my game is like X game meets Y game. Mm -hmm. do, do you have uh, feelings about either <laughs> of those pictures? I do. One of the things that I will always talk about in the games industry is how messed up game genres are. Through no fault of any particular person, it's just that it's still an industry in its infancy. We haven't ironed out a lot of things yet. Uh, movies, when they talk about genres and books and TV as well, they have you know, defined genres that are about what happens, you know, so you've got rom-coms, you've got thrillers, you've got horror. Uh, a lot of the time they're sort of about how 
how it makes the viewer feel. Games instead are defined by their mechanics a lot of the time, which tells you absolutely nothing about maybe what the minute-to-minute -minute gameplay is going to be like as a player. I can play a platformer game and I'm like, okay, all I know is that I'm going to be jumping on stuff. That doesn't help. Like, it could be a platformer that's like Lovecraftian or it could be Mario. That's a huge range of games and and so genres don't really help us when we're de describing what a game is. And that sort of ended up with us having to create our own genres and descriptions of games, things like Metroidvania. A Metroidvania is literally defined by two other games, but for some reason that's just a, a culturally accepted way to describe a game. So. Personally, I think if somebody comes to me with a pitch that is, this game is X meets Y, I am happy to take that and write about that because that is a better way of understanding what a game is like than just calling it, you know, a narrative adventure. That's a nothing description that tells you it's got a story and a story. Useless. I would be careful with this one because you risk A, comparing your game to, you know, like Nintendo masterpieces. And then if somebody comes to it expecting Breath of the Wild and it's not Breath of the Wild, you're going to make yourself look bad. So be careful of that. And B, don't just choose really obvious genres. If you're going to compare yourself to a game, really drill down on which exact games it is. Don't be like, it's a bit like Zelda. Say it's a bit like Link to the Past. Uh, don't say it's like Dark Souls. Say it's like Dark Souls 3 and here's why. I think that gamers right now are tired of hearing about souls likes. <laughs> so you have to be so careful that you're not just another souls like, you know, think about what sets you apart and don't be afraid to compare your game to other things to help people get in. But once they're in, tell them why it's different, tell them why it's unique uh, and maybe use more interesting games than the ones that everyone's using right now. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. I think, um, yeah, certainly Dark Souls meets is kind of dangerous. And yeah. I think, um, you know, if there's a recent example, there's a, one of my one of my clients, uh, the arcade crew, just put out a game called Infernax. And that's mm -hmm. a bit like Castlevania, but it's a bit like Simon's Quest specifically. <laughs> and so I yeah. actually think that's sort of a, a good pitch. You know, it's a Simon's Quest alike is certainly mm -hmm. not something you would hear so much. So I think you're right. If you can find kind of corners or interesting underexposed games to be like, then I think that helps. But I also think, you know, sometimes lazy comparisons can be good because I yeah. do feel like people sometimes will buy games based on lazy comparisons as long as they're not yeah. too lazy. I think there's like a risk reward to it because you're very much going to get the reward of the SEO. If you have, you know, Breath of the Wild being said in the same sentence as your game title, you're going to benefit from that. But at the same time, all the things I already said, you know, like people are going to unfavorably compare it and you might not have have as much of a unique identity if all you ever do is go, it's like Zelda, pay attention to me, it's like Zelda. So, you know, yeah. uh, use with caution, I would say. <laughs> And, and I believe there are some platform rules. I think Switch in particular disallows you from mentioning other games in the description. And I don't think Steam does, but I think Steam isn't a massive fan of it, is what I recall. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. So, yeah. So I think that was a really good point as well. And I think, you know, some of this feeds into how the press see games. And a lot of it is based on, you know, how the articles they write about them perform. So something I definitely wanted to ask you about was clearly the press always want to be showcasing new and interesting games, but also there is this pressure for page views and for people to actually read the articles. So, yeah. uh, you know, is there a danger that the sort of, uh, you know, the press will only cover a certain level of games or do you feel like they're doing a good job right now of finding mm. unexposed gems as well? I think 
That's a big question because there are definitely some writers out there. I'm talking, I suppose, about the sort of the bigger press outlets, which includes, you know, Eurogamer, Polygon, IGN, the ones that have like a pretty stable audience by this point. And then the slightly smaller ones that are specialists like Rock, Paper, Shotgun and the one I write for, Nintendo Life, TM. There's a little plug. Uh, <laughs> I don't actually think we're trademarked. I don't know. Um, anyway, the games they are going to want to write about tend to be a mixture. Pretty much every journalist that I know wants to write about the cool hidden gems that they discovered. Because that's cool. It makes you feel like a hipster who just found a really nice cafe that no one else knows about. You know, everyone likes that feeling. And... Everybody likes saying, hey, you really should check this out and being part of, of an indie that deserves success, getting that success. However, the fact is that indie games just do not do well on their own unless a bunch of different factors can help with that. So sometimes a game can be a big deal because it's being promoted by let's say Xbox or Sony like if it's an exclusive um, sometimes it comes from a well-known developer so you'll get you know the old guard of like LucasArts games being like I made a new point and click in the 2020s and that will get a lot of natural organic press and also if you tie your game into another game um, so like Dead Cells I think was very much like I forget what they did, but like Dead Cells evokes Dark Souls already and it's a roguelike just as roguelikes were getting really popular. And so it's a matter of like luck, timing and the resources that you naturally have. Yeah, I think what I wanted to ask you in, in particular was there's kind of a pressure for page views, uh, but also yeah. there's a there's a need to show new things. Yeah. And so actually a continuation of that, which is something I didn't ask, was around the concept of guides and mm. is interesting nowadays. Quite a lot of editorial websites are moving towards being a little more guide centric than yeah. new game centric. I mean, do you think that's, is that something you like or is that actually something that has positives because it brings more people in to read about the new games maybe? So basically when you're press uh, and you're writing about games, you're constantly doing this balance of time versus reward, like value, I guess. And that is usually counted in page views, not because the press gets paid per page view. Most of us, I think, are salaried. Uh, that's not the case everywhere, but most of us are salaried. Uh, so it's not we need page views to get paid. It's we need page views to keep this website going. And I've worked for multiple places at this point who have said, we write about the AAA stuff so we can cover the indie stuff. It's a balance, you know. So we'll do Destiny guides so that we can fund writing about some tiny game on itch that nobody's played. But the problem with that is that those indie games are going to get buried by things like us talking about Destiny all the time. Um, a lot of the time guides, I think, are hidden from a homepage, so you don't need to worry too much about that. But the interesting thing with guides is that I think in general, people who run websites want long tails on things. And news pieces don't have long tails. Reviews, short to medium tail, depending on what the game is. But guides, massive long tail. Lists and guides, that's what everybody wants. But yeah, guides... it's all about it's all about listicles and guide to calls or whatever yeah, those things are yeah. called. So and, you and have I'm... to do a lot of that content to fund the indie content. 
So. And I'm generally in speaking pro guides. I actually think guides mm-hmm. are helpful, particularly because when I, especially written guides, because when I look for guides for games nowadays, sometimes mm-hmm. I have to go to YouTube and I find that I have to yeah. cycle through like 20 minutes of people explaining extraneous stuff before I find <laughs> information. So yeah. I'm a fan of written guides. So I actually think it's a net positive. But to your point, you would see it generally as a sort of a counterbalance. You know, you do some guides for the long term page views and mm-hmm. then you can cover it, hopefully a few more small and medium level games for the shorter term yeah and guides generally are big like triple a games and indies that are really popular or really hard we tend to write guides for games that are very long for example um so that can be you know like how to unlock carts in mario kart but it can also be i've written about like some of the harvest moon games being like here's how to get sheep or whatever because you know that's what people will be searching for but i wouldn't write a guide necessarily for a very short game or a very small like not a lot of people have heard of it game because it just won't really do that well and I think that is a pointer for developers as well. I think, you know, I've been pushing in my newsletter for a while now, you should make titles that can be playable and have good retention. And sometimes mm-hmm. they have good retention because they have enough complexity that people would need to, uh, you know, understand them enough to have guides written about them. So I think it's yeah. a good, as you say, there are some small and medium games that have guides. And <laughs> that's probably an indication that they've got good retention. And uh, that's actually good because you, they will pick up some of the long tail page views that are people checking out those websites so yeah um so i also wanted to talk a little bit about what you've seen uh, developers do because obviously you've seen a lot of pitches in your time and mm-hmm. you've seen a lot of press releases so maybe we can talk about some of the don'ts uh, what are some of the things that you've seen in developers do that you would not recommend okay i have a big list from the presentation i did so i'm gonna be looking at that i think sometimes pitching your game is a little like applying for jobs you'll hear all this really useful advice, but people don't say how to do it correctly. So I'm gonna try not to be the person that's like, never do this and not offer a viable alternative. So what you have to bear in mind is that press get a lot of emails every day and you are gonna have to grab their attention very quickly and very efficiently. Um, My number one thing that you should not do or rather should do, I don't know, uh, is a really boring subject line you would not believe. How many people send out emails with like a 30 word subject line that I can't even see the whole thing. Like I'd have to have a super wide monitor. I can't read that. Don't bother because it just looks like every other email in my inbox. Keep it short, keep it snappy, keep it to the point. And I, I say use emoji if it's appropriate, but your mileage may vary on that. It's very much like a, you'll come across a certain way if you use emoji. Uh, and it's only for a particular type of game, really. So please, short subject lines. I, I don't have a lot of time for reading and you will do both of us a favor if you keep it short. So that's a great way to get them to click on your email. Because, okay, imagine and you're looking at your inbox and you have a bunch of really long, like there's a sale on and all those boring things. And then you have one that's really short. You automatically assume that's from someone who knows you. <laughs> Because they're not trying to sell you anything, right? So it does begin to foster like a slightly better, slightly more friendlier relationship before you've even begun to pitch your game. So Yeah, and you're really looking for an informal, I mean, you're looking to not come off like a big company, right? You're looking to 
come off yeah. like someone who's engaging and is showing you a game because they care about yeah. it. Yeah. And I think most of the press do want to be approached, not in a super overly informal way where it's like, hey, what's up, mate? But we're people who like games, you know? It's not a well-paying job. <laughs> we're not here for the dollars. We're here because we like games and we like talking about them. And presumably if you're a game dev, you also like games. We already have something in common. So, you know, just approach the press as if you're trying to tell somebody about your really cool thing that you're making. So yeah, don't be overly like, oh my God, check out my sick game. Here's a bunch of swear words. We're friends. Cause that's really off-putting, but professionalism wise, do spell check your emails. Mm -hmm. um, again, we're all writers in the press. We're all very anal <laughs> about spelling and grammar. So it, it's not going to put you in our good books if you send... Like, I've, I've gotten so many press emails where they misspell the name of the game. Ooh. I'm like, oh, no. Okay. Because it just sort of shows that you didn't care enough. Like, this is your big project. This is your moment. And, and you didn't care enough to check that it was spelled right. I've also seen bad, both bad mail merge or wrong outlet name is another thing that's always a little painful. Yeah, right? yeah. And I guess that sort of segues into a, a nice point, which is um, you can address a journalist as a fan. You can say, hey, I really love your work. As long as it's true. I People keep doing this. Like, it's okay to be like, I really love your work. I read, and then it's the name of literally the last thing I wrote. And I'm like, that's not even subtle. You've just Googled me. <laughs> um, so just, you know, we're not stupid. We can tell if you're not actually a fan. I'd rather you didn't say anything than pretend like you care about my work. That's just weird. That gives me like creepy vibes. Yep. Like, eh. so yeah, don't. Don't lie. That seems really obvious. Please don't lie. <laughs> um, and as a side one to that, don't pretend like a journalist that you actually for real enjoy is the perfect person to cover your game if they're not. So every journalist tends to have their specialties. Like some of them are really interested in like farming games. Some are interested in like super intense strategy games. But don't go up to the super intense strategy game person and be like, oh, my cute low poly platformer. I think you'd really like it because they won't. Yep. <laughs> and that's weird. Again, that's just lying. You've lied. Please don't. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's actually interesting to your point on this because when I talk about streamers and I talk about um, how you should approach streamers, I say, yeah, look for streamers who appreciate the kind of game that you're making. And it does mm -hmm. seem to me like from a press perspective, maybe because there's less outlets and then more general interest, people yeah. don't try and do that so much. They'll just be like, well, we're just going to send the same information to everything, you know, whether they like it or not. Yeah, which is all right. I understand that a lot of indie studios don't have the budget either like money-wise or time-wise to hand-write a letter to every individual journalist. So it's absolutely fine to send out some generic press releases to the press that you don't even know if they're interested or not. But I would still say target the ones that you think would be interested and target the ones that matter most to you and pitch it to them. You know, actually look at what they're interested in and tell them why they should write about it. Make it sound like you're doing them a favor if you are. Again, don't lie. <laughs> yeah, I can think of just thinking back about, you know, when I was covering games both from a B2B and kind of whatever mm -hmm. Sutra is slash was, I guess that's B2B <laughs> slash B2C. Uh, I yeah. can think of some people like Sean Murray from Hello Games, mm -hmm. you know, back 
back before they had No Man's Sky, he was doing Joe Danger and I had some conversations with him where, yeah, he was being super genuine. The emails he sent out were very clearly him speaking to me, not like very generic. And it made a mm. significant difference. I mean, you know, I think his games would have done fairly well anyway, but it, but it made a significant difference to how I thought about covering him because I think he really felt like, I felt like I was having a genuine conversation with him to your point. Yeah. I do worry, like, I have a lot of games currently that, that are coming out that are on my radar because I've talked to the people behind it like a person. And usually the games are good as well, like, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I do worry that there are going to be a lot of developers out there who are listening to this and thinking, well, what you're doing is telling me to have high charisma and I don't. And yeah, I, I don't really know how to help by saying, you know, just be, just be yourself, be like a friendly person, someone who everyone wants to hang out with, because that it's easy for extroverts like me, but <laughs> maybe not so easy for everybody else. And uh, I don't want to give unhelpful advice, you know. Yeah, and I think there is different, you know, I think there's also email manner and also is different yeah. also to, you can be an extrovert and have terrible email manner, I think. <laughs> so, uh, you know, luckily, you know, we're both writers probably, so don't mm -hmm. do that. But yeah, I think the important thing is if you can at least come out as kind of polite and helpful in email, you don't have to be incredibly charismatic or on phone or on, on meetings. But I think yeah. to your point, getting, you know, just sort of segueing to what you should do, I think one of your points would be like you know uh, get to the point right I think mm. there's been a, there's probably some of your don't list is don't mm. go on forever and not tell yeah. me what you're talking about <laughs> yeah and also don't send me an email with no images or trailer in it please because I'm not going to read it <laughs> Yeah, and you said something earlier that I actually want to mention, which is you mentioned people send you email like press releases when their game is on sale, I think. Do people really do that? Is that a good idea? <laughs> um, People do a lot of things. <laughs> uh, sometimes people will say, you know, our game is on Kickstarter. And that used to be a good hook when Kickstarter was new. It's not anymore. Same with our game is on sale. Unless it's like a ludicrous sale, like it's gone down to one cent. I'm not going to write about it. That's everything goes on sale all the time. So, you know, why would I single out this one game? If your entire publisher or developer studio is having a sale, that's maybe news. But just imagine that everybody else is sending the email that you're about to send. <laughs> Please. Yeah, and I'm on the same page where I think, you know, your your social media can talk about this and your and mm -hmm. maybe your Steam news page can mention some of it. But to your mm -hmm. point, you need to have segmented uh, decisions on what you're sending to people. And particularly when it comes to press and streamers, I think they appreciate less emails, but emails that have very specific actionable information in them. Yeah, I think it's it sort of boils down to be respectful of people's time. The press, you know, it is our job to open emails and write about them all day, but that doesn't mean that you can just send me emails that are basically filler. <laughs> I'm not a robot. I don't just turn press releases into news. <laughs> yeah, there's sites for that, gamespress.com. If you want to mail yeah. inbox at gamespress.com, then your press release <laughs> will appear on a number of external websites without any humans, well, maybe one exactly. human having touched it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's quite different. Um, 
I'd actually like to talk a little bit, we're talking a lot about kind of electronic communications here because that's where yeah. we are, especially in this kind of COVID era. But maybe it'd be nice to talk a little bit about, you know, phone briefings or video briefings or even in-person briefings. Like, where do you see the role of those nowadays? Do you uh, do you appreciate being invited to those? Or are you very much like, my workload is such that electronically does 80% of the work for me? Um, hmm. Personally, I don't love phone briefings uh, unless it is a game that is big enough to warrant embargoes and things like that. So, you know, I've definitely done a few for bigger games, but even then sometimes they're a waste of my time because they don't tell me anything that couldn't have just been an email. And at the end of the day, what most press want out of those things is information and assets you can email most of those things. Uh, the best thing that you can have as a phone briefing or a video, whatever, is a playthrough of the game. And really, if you're an indie, there's no reason you can't just send press like a demo and, you know, tell them not to write about it before a certain time. They are very time consuming and energy consuming. You know, I can't do anything else for like an hour mm -hmm. if I've got like a weird press meeting or whatever. And it very much makes me do it on someone else's time as well. And a lot of press are on different time zones. So what works for you might not work for everybody. Yeah. yeah, no, I completely agree. And if I think about what I've done with Game Discover Co, you know, it's part mm -hmm. part newsletter and part consulting, but I only have maybe 15 hours of 15 to 20 hours a week to spend mm -hmm. on my newsletter. And I'm putting out like five or 6,000 words a week. And wow. so as a result, I do not, I mean, other than this podcast, which is an, uh, an experiment to try and get more content in here and is very focused, I mm -hmm. absolutely don't take phone or video briefings. I take everything to email and that's way more efficient in terms of how you sort stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And also then I have a record of it. Like I'm, I'm not gonna transcribe some phone call we had. That's, it's either expensive because you pay someone else to do it or it's time consuming because I'm doing it. So yeah, at least with an email, I can reference it later. <laughs> And you also talked about embargoes just now, and that's actually something that I realized I want to ask you about, because mm -hmm. embargoes are something that is obviously used heavily for very large games, but then as you go down, it's used intermittently, and I wondered your opinions on when it should be used, if it's when it's useful, when it's not useful. I think with indies, I appreciate things being more like a heads up when it comes to embargoes, like heads up, we're going to announce this on Friday. Please don't say anything about it until Friday, rather than like, you know, big company embargoes, which are like, don't even mention the existence of this character until this date. And you're like, what? We know he exists. That's so weird. <laughs> Um, I don't see many indies doing embargoes unless it's the kind of game that really benefits from people not knowing things about the games. Uh, and in that case, it's less of an embargo, like don't mention anything. And it's more of a, in your review, please don't mention these specific things. I think that's reasonable. I'm surprised more places, like more indie games don't actually specify that kind of thing. Usually reviewers aren't going to be like massive spoilers in their reviews, but you know. But embargoes, I don't think they're super useful unless they're a heads up. That's my entire thought on it, really. <laughs> no, no, that's good, because I think what you're saying is like you can do embargoes, but they're very light embargoes. And therefore people, you know, like people like it. Um, yeah. 
press like it if you have a chance to write up something ahead of time if it's a little bit interesting but you just don't want to be like yelled at and told lots of unnecessary reasons why you can't do something at that yeah and i think an embargo for a game that's quite small it carries the risk of making you come across as a bit like a pity (laughs) i know that sounds really mean but like do you think that i would break an embargo like places like nintendo are doing it because they actively have to crack down on people leaking things but small games don't really get leaked so (laughs) yeah it's less of a big deal and i think you know when you go to the fine of this i've occasionally found people who ask you to sign ndas before they give you embargo news and i think that one is quite funny especially because the people in general for me that's like a an indication that the news is not going to be good so i just ignore them Mm. i'm afraid yeah but yeah kind of kind of yeah kind of controversial but yeah Mm So, yeah, I mean, I feel like that was actually quite a lot of what I wanted to get to on the press side of things. Is there anything else just sort of finishing off this don'ts list? Are there any other like three or four kind of quick don'ts that you would like to tell people that you think they are still doing when it comes uh, to yes. reaching out? Um, number one, don't overdo it with gifts. Gifts are really nice. But if you send a lot of gifts in an email, my browser will crash. Please don't do that. Uh, Also, I can't really use GIFs that often, so they're not that useful to press. Include one or two, that's fine, but not too many. Two, uh, when you're at physical press events, don't corner journalists and act like a salesman. Uh, It's really obvious and it makes me uncomfortable. Often at events, I am just hanging out with friends or like going to see games that I'm excited about. But if you treat it as like, a business opportunity, then I'm gonna feel really uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh, And number three, this one is a weird one. It doesn't happen a lot. Please don't send physical press kits Mm. without permission. (laughs) It's really scary. A lot of journalists, especially women and, uh, and people of color as well in games journalism, don't want people to know their addresses because they will get harassed. We're very protective about our addresses. And if I know that some PR company has my address and is sending things, then that's a little scary. (laughs) So just please make sure that you get permission. I know that it's exciting to keep the press kit a secret and have it as a fun surprise, but it's not a fun surprise if you do it like that, so. Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting you should say that because obviously one of my previous jobs was helping to run GDC and we did Mm -hmm. notice at one point that we were still were collecting addresses for the press even though we weren't using them and so we we got rid of that and I know that E3 in particular was very poor at that and that's probably one place that people ended up getting addresses from because E3 managed to leak its entire press list including addresses at one point. I think the last time I applied for a GDC press pass and it asked for my address I I filled in the box with like I'm not giving you my address. Yeah. So maybe that got through. <laughs> I think it might have worked. But yeah, it was also one of these things where like, it's funny, isn't it? Like sometimes you realize like we weren't giving it to anyone, but we were still yeah. asking for it. So they were yeah. like, oh yeah, that's It's really in a database dumb. somewhere yeah. and that's that's not cool. Yeah, yeah it's still not cool because who, who knows what happens to that database if the hackers get it. So yeah. Exactly. Um, great. So yeah, so actually, um, you know, we're getting towards the end here, but I did want to talk about, you know, we're talking a lot about press side of things, but it is interesting to me that you've also worked in the industry um, in a community ma- and still continue to cross over, I think, and do also community management and narrative sometimes in some other areas. So I wanted to ask you, you know, as someone who's sort of seen both sides of this, is the stuff that sort of surprised you or you've been interested to see from another perspective when you've been doing either community management or narrative in studios? I think a lot of it didn't surprise me that much. Like I knew that a lot of 
the press, especially like the cooler indie press, will only really cover indie games if they know about them in advance. It sounds very sort of like nepotistic and it is. <laughs> so yeah, I it was being on the dev side, you know, I, I worked for co-op, which has a lot of indie cachet. Um, so it wasn't too hard to reach out to the press. We already had a game, uh, Nog, which had like small but successful critical uh, reception. Um, so it was very easy, you know, the groundwork had been laid already. Uh, and also I knew a bunch of the press, which made it very weird. I had to be a bit hands off with it so it wasn't unethical. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like if you've already got like the cool guy status in indie games, it's a lot easier. So I never really had to experience the kind of like we're building this studio up from nothing and we really need people to pay attention to us kind of thing. Um, very lucky to not have to deal with that because that's stressful. But knowing a lot of other people who have done that, who have been like, this is my first game, it really helps to have a publisher who already knows all the press. Pretty much every indie publisher right now is that. So, <laughs> you know, pick well because the publisher will actually end up saying a lot about you if you're published by Annapurna, you're going to be perceived as like kind of hip, maybe a bit wanky, but like in a cool way. Uh, if you're published by Devolver, it's like guns and blood and explosions and same with Raw Fury. So, you know, like a publisher can really help, but be aware that they're also going to come with preconceived notions. Yeah, it's an interesting point, publisher flavor. I've noticed that there's sort of there's a top echelon of publishers that have quite strong flavor, but then there's yeah. a number of other publishers that sort of don't have flavor. And I've been trying mm -hmm. to work out whether flavor is always good as a publisher, because I think from a press perspective, it sort of helps and also from a player perspective. But then you might get as a publisher, you end up getting maybe, um, you know, stereotyped a little bit and then if you yeah. want to do something different it, then it can be difficult so I guess mm -hmm. that's true also from, also from your community perspective I presume that you know co-op was already stereotyped based on its previous games as a certain oh, yeah. type of studio right? Yeah we were very much like artsy vector stuff that's kind of what people expected um, which worked well for Winding Worlds which is the Apple Arcade game we made so yeah you, it's a little harder to challenge the our next game is different from the one you know us for but it's been done so it's not too much to worry about i'd say and i definitely think from a non-press and developer point of view individual players sometimes pay less attention to this than we, than everyone would like i do think people oh are just God, like i'm yeah. playing this game what is by who <laughs> a lot of people will assume that the publisher is the developer there isn't really that like understanding of the industry from players a lot of the time. So, you know, people will say this is a Devolver digital game and it's not. They they just helped make it be real, but that doesn't mean they made it. Usually they have absolutely nothing to do with the development. So yeah, I'm quite careful in my newsletter, if possible, to always list the developer and the publisher because mm -hmm. I'm a little sensitive to that and it's quite it's Same. quite easy. And even on the Switch, I don't know if you know, but some of the Switch rules, it's difficult to get both developer and publisher in there, right? I know. It's very, very annoying, um, especially on the Switch because sometimes the porting studio is entirely different from the developer and the publisher. And I think Nintendo tends to list, like, the publisher first. A lot of places list the publisher first. And, like, if you don't know about the industry, you don't know the difference between publisher and developer. Why would you care? You know? So 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something that platforms, again, you know, at Game Discover Co, we look at platforms a lot. So that's probably something we should challenge platforms to do better on. I, I know that Steam does a good job, yeah. but, you know, sometimes the searching functionality, you know, it's like on, it annoyed me on um, on the music side of things, on Apple Music for a long time, maybe even now, it's difficult to search by label. Like platforms seem to like mm-hmm. uh, sort of anonymizing some of these structures. And so yeah. it's I think it's good when you can just click on the developer and see what else they made, which generally works on Steam, for example. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I think one other question for me then, which is uh, we're getting right to the end here, and I just wanted to ask you about what kind of games you've been playing recently, because this is something I'm going to try and also ask on my podcast guests, and it can be anything. Other games that you've been enjoying? Yeah, so I've been playing Earthbound for the first time because it got added to the Nintendo Switch online catalog, and I haven't really wanted to play too many of the like old SNES games on the online catalog because eh, they haven't aged very well. But Earthbound is incredible; it's aged so well. It could have been made like last year, you know. Like it's very much a specific type of game, but. It's fun to play. It's like, there's annoying backtracking, but that's a modern game thing too. Um, The dialogue's incredible. The localization, I think localization is like really underappreciated and it's incredible in this game. It's so good. Um, It's very goofy. It's got a very modern sense of humor. I'm really enjoying it. And then alongside that, I'm playing Skyward Sword, which has not aged very well at all. And is, I think like 10 years old. I think it's around 10 maybe 11. And you know, it's it's a Wii game. It's got motion controls that don't really work. It's very much like a weird Zelda because it sort of stands apart from the rest of them because it went so hard on the, the motion controls mechanic. And it does suffer a little bit because of that. But I think the story is really interesting. I think the aesthetics of it um, are very appealing to me. Um, and when I say I'm playing it, I'm forcing my partner to play it. Oh. Well, that's fine. (laughs) I've played it before. Um, And so I'm sort of watching him getting frustrated with all the motion controls and being like, I promise you it'll be worth it. And I'm not even sure if it will. So... Well, I think an important part of relationships is making your partner play an annoying game and then watching yeah. them. So I think that's a good angle for you. Yeah. Well, he really likes Zelda. So I'm like, you can't have not played this one Zelda game. And now he's played it for whether he likes it or not. So that's great. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. It was so wonderful having you on the podcast. And uh, once again, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I love talking about how to email me properly. <laughs> and now everybody knows. So that's great. Yes. Good. Wonderful. And that's our show for this week. Thanks so much to Kate Gray for coming onto the podcast. You can find out more about her and her work at kategray.me. And if you don't know already, this podcast is made by Game Discover Co. We run a newsletter around video game discovery. Check it out and sign up at newsletter.gamediscover.co. If you dig what we're doing and want to support us, sign up for our paid plus newsletter subscription and get extra newsletters, charts, Discord access, and ebooks. For this podcast, many thanks to our producer, editor, and transcriber Alejandro Linares Lopez, theme tune composer Keith Bayliss, aka Vimster, and all of our subscribers and listeners. We'll see you back in Game Discovery Land soon. Have a good one. <laughs>